You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we're gonna be talking about venture capitalism and corporate responsibility. In a little while, I'll be speaking with Betsy Conway, who's the director of the Lowe's Foundation. But to start out, I am delighted to be joined by two tech pioneers, Frida Kapor-Klein and Mitch Kapor, and to talk about their new book, Closing the Equity Gap. Mitch and Frida, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. We're delighted to be here, thank you. Thank you. Well, I had a chance yesterday on a long flight to read your book and enjoyed it very much, but I'd love to start by sharing with your our audience a little bit about your backgrounds. And maybe Mitch, you could start. Um, you're the math geek, right? Tell us how you ended up taking those skills <laughs> and ending up where you are now. Well, yes, that was a math geek. Graduated high school at 16, one of those kind of kids. And then personal computers happened and I fell in love. And in the 80s, uh, developed a spreadsheet, uh, Lotus 123, that became a big explosive growth company. Frida came to work uh, there to make Lotus the most progressive employer in the US. And that spoke to me because I always felt I was an outsider and a misfit. And that was the beginning of our connection uh, with each other about building inclusive workplaces. And that has morphed over the years, given Frida's background, which she'll, she'll tell you about as, as an activist, into the work we the work we do today, investing in gap closing companies. So Frida, pick up right there. You're the social justice activist, as as Mitch said. So what took you, and how have you brought that into Capo Capital? A uh, great question. Yes, I always started from the activist track. Um, I don't tell kids this, but I used to cut middle school to go picket for the farm workers. Uh, I co-founded the first organization in the United States to focus on sexual harassment. Uh, that was 1976. Uh, so Lotus was my first corporate job. And because it had this job description to make Lotus the most progressive employer in the U.S., I was captivated. And so I had a fairly wide berth about what to try. Uh, and then many years later, a dozen years later, Mitch and I got together as a couple. And then another decade later, we, uh, or even more, we started Kapor Capital as an experiment to see if you could achieve top financial returns while focusing exclusively on companies that close gaps of access, opportunity, or outcome for low-income communities and or communities of color. This is fascinating. Mitch, tell me a little bit more about the underlying thesis and whether it's evolved in the years since you launched Capital Capital. Well, the th yes, as we have invested in over 150 companies, we have come to understand well, sector by sector, whether it's in ed tech or fintech or workplace or health, how to spot entrepreneurs uh, with uh, whose lived experience gives them uh, the, the motivation to solve uh, problems that actually uh, reduce uh, reduce gaps. So in, in education, it might be products that serve kids in Title I schools that uh, are in low-income uh, communities. Uh, in, uh, in FinTech, it might be some kind of service that uh, helps people without, uh, you know, good good credit scores uh, obtain credit, and so we have 
learned how to uh, identify uh, founders and business opportunities that we think are bullseyes on our gap closing thesis. Making mistakes along the way and learning more from the mistakes uh, uh, perhaps than anything else. Mitch, before I go back to Frieda, I have another question with you because you were already part of this corporate um, investment community. What was the reception like among other people in that community? Did they think you were nuts to try this approach or was there an immediate openness that you were being innovative and might make change? No, honestly, there was an enormous amount of skepticism in the idea that you could uh, in, invest in ways that made the world a better place and still make uh, money. And we decided rather than trying to win by argument, we would actually uh, win by conducting an experiment. And what we found, and we published this in uh, impact reports, is uh, that we have gotten top quartile, top 25% returns with a strategy that is 100% focused on gap closing companies. That has begun to win converts. It's a long battle. We're not there yet. Uh, but uh, Silicon Valley does, uh, on its good days, uh, pay attention uh, to data, and we have the data. So, Frieda, I'd like to ask you about that. Um, you have some data now, but tell me as well about the sort of general receptiveness in the ecosystem of Silicon Valley to the ideas you are committed to. Well, I have to say mixed. Um, that, you know, what, what I call provocatively greed first investing, um, that we get the attention of those investors uh, once we achieve the financial returns that we have. So very interestingly, many of our top performing portfolio companies were passed over by every top tier Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Once they've gotten through their seed round and their series A and they're raising their series B, all of a sudden those venture capitalists become our friends and they're pounding down the door wanting to participate in that round. So if it takes that we have to take the risk and that we have to prove the thesis, I'm okay with that. I do think that whenever there's a speed bump, that the traditional venture capitalists strong arm the founders and say, get rid of focusing on diversity, get rid of focusing on impact, just focus on profitability. So that points to the need for much more values aligned capital. We are looking to have many more values aligned investors for our founders to choose from as they build out wildly successful businesses that are also closing gaps. Rita, and a follow-up for you, I, I'm taken and interested by this phrase, greed first, because there is often philanthropy second, right? Some of the biggest uh, nonprofits come out of Silicon Valley. Do you see what you do in any way as philanthropic or, or is it entirely different in its approach and way of thinking about how to invest in people? Uh, I see it as entirely different because we are investing uh, to make financial returns and close gaps simultaneously. I wish that philanthropic capital was more risk-taking. Philanthropic capital, sadly, is focused on maximizing returns so that then 5% can be given to solve the problems that their 95% investment is causing. 
It makes no sense. And one of the things that I would hope to happen is that we could start a campaign to have endowments investing consistent with their mission, whether they're university endowments or whether they're foundations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mitch, one of the things that makes this book so readable is that it's about human beings, it's about people. I'd love you just quickly to talk about some of the investments you've made and of course the people you've invested in. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you one story about a couple of our founders, Jake and Irma, who come from Fresno, which is not a hotbed of uh, technical uh, innovation, but they developed a way to uplift people in underestimated cities like Fresno, and now it's spread really across the country, and give them training so that they can double their salary by getting jobs in uh, information technology. Uh, as developers, as Salesforce uh, administrators. And the, the secret sauce, in a way, is that they understand that the barriers that people face are not a lack of talent or a lack of motivation. They're practical issues. Like, in order to get training, they need childcare. They need transportation. So they provide those services. And the whole thing is built around a paid apprenticeship model so that they can uh, learn uh, and, and earn at the same time. Um, Jake and Irma come from Fresno, Irma's fourth generation farm worker. She has the lived experience of understanding that community. It's her family, it's her neighbors. And so the entire uh, program is structured based on her uh, lived experience. And it's just been dramatically uh, successful. Uh, they just raised uh, $80 million. They're, they're expanding. They went to the south side of Chicago. And we just love to work with folks like that who are making um, a huge difference for their communities and building a big business. Frida, um, one of the things you talk about so compellingly in your work is attention to the stress that comes with leading companies and your own means of, of dealing with stress. How important is that? And can you run a, a, a major company in such an innovative way and give yourself time to look after your mental health? We do encourage founders to pay attention to their mental health and to pay attention to the mental health of their employees. Given who our founders are and our focus, as Mitch talked about, on lived experience, we also think the best way to estimate or evaluate a founder is their distance traveled, not their pedigrees. So what it means is that when there's yet another murder, of a black person by the police, we understand that it's trauma inducing. And so we provide resources, we provide counseling sessions uh, just for black entrepreneurs, just for black employees to make sure that they have a time and a space to heal while they are also building a startup, which is inherently hard. So we try to create permission, if you will, to be a whole human being. Yeah, so important. Mitch, describe a little bit more this distinction, distinction excuse me, between pedigree and distance traveled. What do those two terms mean for you? Well, pedigree in a way, you could look at a resume and maybe it says Stanford computer science or it says Harvard or an Ivy. But what you don't know when you look at that is what kind of advantages did they have 
what kind of additional tutoring and services do their parents uh, give the kid to give an edge in college admission versus a kid who goes to uh, a school that doesn't offer AP classes, uh, that doesn't have any guidance counselors? And you just can't tell looking at looking at the pedigree. Often people who wind up at, at Ivy's and so on are there just because of their accidents of birth of the zip code they were born into. Whereas if you look at the distance traveled, you look at where a person started and look at the hurdles and barriers they have overcome through dint of their own efforts, that is going to tell you a lot about their uh, resilience, their persistence and character traits that contribute to being a successful founder. So we don't care what you know, where you have your degree or in fact, if you have a degree, but we're very interested in your distance traveled in life. Interesting. Um, we've had some interest, of course, from uh, viewers, and I'd love um, to read a question to you. It comes from Heather McCullough in uh, California, and I think it's probably for you, Frida, but either of you could take a go at it. Heather McCullough mm -hmm. from California asks, how do we get corporate leaders to proactively engage in building the infrastructure we need to support women workers in their dual roles as breadwinners and caregivers? And of course, this goes so far beyond your own uh, specific interests. But Frida, Let's let this one answer for uh, Heather, if we can. Well, Heather, thank you for the question. And I think it's really important to look at some of the trends. Companies are losing workers uh, in droves. Uh, they're spending more and more money on recruiting and retention. And I think this is a great way that companies can build infrastructure, focus on balancing being a breadwinner and a caregiver, uh, increase the benefits, increase the flexibility. So there are many things that employers can do to say we recognize you have multiple roles in life and our job is to help you do all of them more effectively. Uh, I would hazard a guess, and I've done some research along these lines, uh, that the amount of money that is now going into turnover, if you put it into different kinds of benefits, ask your employees what they need to be successful, that actually you will spend less money on creating more uh, targeted benefits. Uh, you'll have a happier workforce. All the literature for decades says a happier workforce leads to greater profitability. Uh, Mitch, I'd love to turn to you now with a little bit of uh, a more newsy question about Silicon Valley Bank and its importance in the venture ecosystem. It's been acquired. What does this mean? Can it be replaced? What's happened in this uh, with its um, failure? Well, we've learned a lot of things. Not a banking expert, so I'm not going to go there. But in terms of Silicon Valley Bank exemplified both the best and worst of, of the Valley. Uh, the, the best parts is they really did understand uh, startups or some startups. They did provide services to those startups that were very helpful to them that conventional banks uh, didn't. Uh, but on the other hand, it was a very clubby, exclusivist sort of thing. And frankly, our portfolio companies had a mixed experience. Some were good. Some really couldn't get accounts or didn't get any special treatment uh, and were just sort of taken for granted. So I think if there's a learning here, it should be that, first of all, banks do need to understand the unique characteristics of the startup ecosystem, but they should cast a wide net and get away from this elitist people we know, people who look like us, understand that talent comes in different kinds of packages and look for the underestimated uh, kinds of talent, both in the new venture funds that are emerging and in startups, and you know serve all of them equally. It's, it's a real opportunity, and we'll see if 
banks step up and we'll see if venture capitalists learn from uh, this and really help their companies with things, startups, uh, with treasury management and kind of basic skills, which we've seen that a lot of startups didn't have and they got they got caught up in the in the bank failure. Peter, a little bit more of a cultural question for you about the culture of Silicon Valley itself, whether it's been tainted by this experience and whether you see a sort of broadening in opportunities beyond that sort of singular focus on Silicon Valley. Well, I think it is uh, tainting uh, Silicon Valley. The tech sector had a declining reputation before the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, and I think uh, quite honestly and sadly, well-deserved. Uh, I would hope that the Silicon Valley Bank failure on top of all the economic pressure and downturn and, and lowering of valuations that happened in 2022 and is continuing, I would hope that that would really cause a moment of deep reflection for Silicon Valley. I would hope that we would all hold up a mirror and say, how did this happen and how can we do better? I do think one of the things that Silicon Valley Bank can do that some venture capital firms are starting to do is to say, we need to cast a wider net at who sits at the check writing table. That indeed, when you diversify the investing team, you then start attracting different kinds of entrepreneurs. Similarly, the new banks, the new banking relationship managers that emerge out of this crisis ought to look like the startups and the communities and the country they're serving. A last question, I'm afraid I could talk for much longer, but Mitch, maybe you can take this one. You started Capo Capital, it's been a success. Is it a model that's being replicated? Are you seeing people coming to you and asking how they can do the same thing? Yeah, yes, we have. So for instance, in 2016, we started something called the Founders Commitment. We will not get involved with a company unless they commit to building a diverse workforce and an inclusive culture. And we help them do that. I think we were the first firm to do that. That founder's commitment has been adopted by a number of other firms. It is, it is spreading. And so, yeah, as I said, there's a long way to go on this, but we feel like some of the innovations and things that we did that people were skeptical about that were very edgy are slowly becoming more mainstream. And another example I would cite is that we also were, to our knowledge, the first firm to say, we do not require what's called a warm intro, uh, meaning that usually founders have to find a way that they get somebody known to the venture capital firm to introduce them. We said that's inherently biased. That's all about privilege. And you can submit your pitch deck if you meet our investment criteria, you can submit a pitch deck directly through the website of Cape or Capital. We have funded businesses who had no connection between anyone on the team, their team, and anyone on our team. But it was a great gap-closing business. Great gap-closing business. What a great phrase to end on. Frida Kapor-Klein, Mitch Kapor, thank you so much for joining me today on Washington Post Live. Our pleasure. You're, you're welcome. Great thank conversation. You. Thank you. Thank you both. And I will be back soon with our next guest, Betsy Conway from the Lowe's Foundation. So stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, leadership editor at Fortune. The last few years have seen businesses weather economic and social disruption. As a result, companies increasingly realize the importance of future-proofing their organizations to remain agile and innovative. 
Talent is at the core of that. Here to discuss this very topic is Scott Beardsley, Dean of the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ruth. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, let's begin with a level set. What issues are top of mind for you and your colleagues as you consider and confront the future of work? A great question. I think it's on everyone's mind. Most people have been talking about the future of work in terms of whether or not everyone's going to be remote or working from wherever they want to. But I think the issue is much broader than that. It's really about how do we help human beings achieve their full potential in in search of solving the world's greatest problems through work. Uh, and when I think about that coming out of the pandemic, a lot of that is about leading with purpose. How do you help people find the meaning they want in life and to find that meaning through work, which is where you spend a lot of your time? And I think a lot of people have asked that existential question at whatever age they have coming through the pandemic. And it's, it's going to remain relevant for years to come because we are faced with with tremendous uncertainty, you know, whether it's the rise of technology and AI or new strains of viruses or geopolitical uncertainty or just not knowing what the future brings. Uh, you know, the world is going to have to have real business leaders solving real problems. And the future of that work is about how do you harness that talent? And the talent is going to go to places that have meaning, uh, that have purpose, organizations that resonate with them, and also that have an ethical compass, a moral compass. Absolutely. Well, to your point, the way we work and the world more broadly has changed at such a frenetic pace, even in just the last three years. How are institutions like the Darden School preparing for the careers and the workplaces of the future? In effect, through the programs we have at Darden, such as our MBA, residential MBA or part-time or executive MBA programs, and also our Master of Science and Business Analytics program, what we do is to simulate the real world. So we use the case method or the Socratic method of dialogue where you put real world situations in front of the students and they learn how to solve those problems. We make the learner, the general manager, the senior leader every day in the classroom. And that is the way that you do it is through practice. Uh, it is about exercising those muscles, being placed into environments where there is no obvious answer about thinking about the different trade-offs that you need to make. And that is exactly what we do in our courses by using current events, real cases, but also teaching the functional disciplines. But more than that, also facing the, you know, the, the questions that cut across many domains. And that is what we do. And there's, there's a reason why we've been rated uh, the top general management school in the world by the Financial Times most of the last decade. Um, and that's because we are really preparing people to solve real world problems and they get really good at it in the classroom. Yeah. Well, as the work landscape shifts, so too do the competencies that are required and that are needed. How can organizations help their employees to upskill for the future? I mean, the most important thing a organization can do is to invest in their people. And even if an organization is not investing in you, the advice I would give to anyone, any young adult, but anybody in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, is to invest in yourself. It's never too early and it's never too late. So I think that lifelong learning has become more important than ever. You do not learn everything you need to know by the age of 22. Uh, you need to keep learning because our environment is changing so quickly. There's so many things that have evolved at a frenetic pace 
the rate of innovation, the rate of disruption is perhaps at one of the fastest rates we've ever seen in the history of mankind. And in that context, you need to retool yourself. So at Darden, we have lifelong learning programs that are not degree related. They're you know, certificate programs such as the executive program, the advanced management program that we have at Darden that really helps you to learn how to become a, a new leader, uh, try and learn new skills, how to lead other people, how to lead yourself. And we teach those programs in Washington, DC at our new campus there, and also in Charlottesville or in custom programs that we offer at the client or at the company's site. So that that's the way I think about it, Ruth, is it really is about lifelong learning. It's not just about get a degree early in your life. Yes, that's important. You can also get a degree a little bit later in your life, but it's also some short courses, some refreshers that you can go back and focus in on a given area of leadership. How do you lead yourself and how do you lead other people in this very dynamic time that we see in our world? Yeah, well, Dynamic is the key word, Scott, as you know, talent is arguably a company's most critical resource. When done right, it can really fast track growth. Thank you so much for your deep insight. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. I'm now joined by Betsy Conway, the director of the Lowe's Foundation, to talk about workforce development. Betsy, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to start right where that video took us, the introductory video, at the big, big commitment the Lowe's Foundation has made to workforce development. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how it's directed? That's right. So as the Lowe's Foundation, we're constantly evolving and looking to address critical needs in our communities. What we know about the skilled trades industry is we know that we need more people. Uh, we know that last year alone, nearly 400,000 jobs went unfilled every month. And this year, we need an additional 546,000 people to be attracted into this work to be able to meet demand on top of the pace of normal hiring. And so that gave us a great opportunity here at the Lowe's Foundation to really invest in programs that will attract and train and certify individuals, get them into the workforce quickly to begin to uh, go through these incredible, well-paying and highly satisfying and rewarding careers in the skilled trades. Betsy, the foundation has been around, I think, since 1957. What is it about this particular post-pandemic moment that made you make this particular investment and how different is it from your investments in the past? That's right. So our Lowe's Foundation is a public charity. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. And, and as I mentioned, we're constantly evolving and looking at trends. And we listened to our providers, our professionals, we also looked with many of our current grant recipients to see what, what is working uh, when it comes to addressing this critical worker shortage and the skills gap. And that's where we developed our Gable Grants program that's really focused on helping to fund and support and expand programs through community and technical colleges, as well as community-based nonprofits to help attract individuals into this field. Um, the foundation has evolved over time, really meeting the different needs of our community. 
And most recently, we focused here in our hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina, in the region supporting skilled trades programs, as well as some community colleges. And those were really our inspiration to show us that we could take this and scale it nationally. So before we go any further, be a little bit more specific about what kind of skilled trades you're talking about. Is this plumbing, carpentry, something I hadn't thought about? Can you be a little bit more specific about how we're investing and where these investments are needed? That's right. So some of the areas that we're focused on are HVAC, plumbing, electrical, carpentry, and construction, which is a broad category containing many different sub-trades, as well as small appliance repair. So these are all critical trades to helping to grow the infrastructure. You know, one of the things that we do is we, we talk to our professionals and they tell us we have the business, we have the products, no problem there, but what we need is the people. So we feel that by working with community and technical colleges and our community-based nonprofits who have specific programs that are really focused on what employers need, we're going to be able to help meet that gap and help provide the labor and the workforce that's so desperately needed in the sector. Betsy, I'd love it if you could describe a little bit more clearly what the partnerships with local universities and other institutions will look like. How will they work? Yes, yeah, so we are very excited uh, because we do see this as a true partnership. Uh, we are going to be investing in their programs, building connections, bringing our network, our expertise, our resources to the table, <laughs> And we want to really partner with these programs to help provide funding in the areas where they need the most. So if they need additional salary to help pay instructors so that the instructors uh, will, will be retained by the community college, for instance, we know it's a tight marketplace out there. We want the community college to use the funds in that way. When we think about our community-based nonprofits, one of the partners we work with here in the Charlotte region called She Built This City does a learn and earn program. They're designed to meet women and attract women into the field to meet women where they are. So it may be funding childcare, transportation, food, a stipend. There are a number of different supports within both community and technical colleges and community-based nonprofits that we want to invest in. Because at the end of the day, we're looking to get 50,000 people trained and not just into jobs, but into careers. And so we want our partners to use their funds and invest those funds in all areas of their program that they feel they could expand and make more robust and meet the needs of the individuals that they're training. Betsy, there are two segments, as I understand it, to this, these, these Gable grants. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the second segment, which I think is investing in nonprofits. Is that right? That's right. So in addition to our first segment, which is community and technical college programs, we're also going to be making investments in community-based nonprofits. And as we think about our Gable Grants program, we're really prioritizing programs that look at uh, women and underrepresented demographics, such as people of color. We're also looking at rural areas, as well as second chance programs. And what we think with these community-based nonprofits, what we've seen here with our experience with our current grant recipients in this space is that they bring the lived experience. They work within the community. 
Uh, for instance, as I talked about, she built the city. They know exactly how to meet women where they are to show that this can be a great career and to open opportunities and open the doors to, to really help uh, paint the picture of what a career in this field can be like. So as we think about our community-based nonprofits, we're looking for programs like that, programs that we can invest in and expand so that they can continue to attract new communities into the field. We think there's a great opportunity to diversify the field from a gender, ethnicity, and racial standpoint, and we want to be at the, at the heart of that. Betsy, you, me you mentioned the phrase second chance. Are you referring to people who've been previously incarcerated? And if so, how would that work? Yes, yeah, so again, just like all of our uh, community-based nonprofits, we'll be looking to programs who are working with justice-involved individuals, second chance programs, that may also be exposing those individuals to this wonderful, rewarding, well-paying career path. Because at the end of the day, when we think about what we're trying to do here, we're changing lives. And there's so much opportunity when it comes to the skilled trades where we've got uh, strong community and technical colleges and we've got strong community-based nonprofits that can really meet individuals where they are, provide them with wraparound services to help them be successful, provide that soft skills training and other supports to get them right into the workforce and changing not only their lives, but the lives of their families and generations to come. So Betsy, stepping back from the actual um, Lowe's Foundation grants, talk to me a little bit about what's going on in the labor market more broadly and what opportunities and challenges you see here, again, in this particular post-pandemic moment. So we know that there is a significant worker shortage when it comes to the skilled trades. Um, mm. And that is, the skilled trades are not alone uh, in that. I think a particular challenge when it comes to the trades is that a number of misconceptions exist when it comes to this, uh, when it comes to the industry. So, you know, we hear that, um, you know, often folks will think there's not opportunity for career advancement. Uh, the earning potential isn't there, as well as um, job satisfaction. But in reality, uh, the reverse is true. These are well-paying jobs, and I think that can help attract individuals into the field. It's just a matter of awareness. When we think about plumbers and electricians, they actually make more than 30% of the U.S. median wage, uh, which is incredible uh, to think about when it comes to op economic opportunity. And when I think about job satisfaction, they have some, these jobs have some of the most uh, highest job satisfaction. They are very rewarding. I think the Washington Post actually did some analytics around job happiness and the construction industry was fourth among all industries on happiness, uh, low levels of stress. So when we think about the number of positions that are open, when we think about programs that are accessible, low barriers to entry for individuals. Um, it's just a matter of raising awareness that this career can be for you, and we want you to take advantage of it. Of course, we've had some federal legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act and investments in infrastructure. How have they played into your thinking right now about how to improve the lot of people who might end up in or head towards trades jobs? 
Yes, when I think about this, uh, you know, it's really just more opportunity. So there's an increased emphasis on apprenticeships. We are working closely with community and technical colleges who will be benefit benefiting. So when it comes again to considering this field, there are so many opportunities to uh, receive the training and certifications, the work-based learning, helping everything you need to help uh, an individual be attractive to an employer. Um, and this just helps provide a multiplier effect. So we think that our investments coupled with federal monies or other monies that community and technical colleges and other funding that community nonprofits may receive, it will only help accelerate the path uh, to help us bridge this gap. We're gonna to have to wind up soon, but I wanted to ask you about the opportunities for private investment following the kind of drive that you have put in philanthropically. What opportunities do you see there? Do you see any indication that private investment will follow? Um, as it comes, as it relates to our Lowe's Foundation or to the skilled trades itself? To still skilled trades. So uh, I, I do think that there, you know, at, one one of the one of the pathways that can exist uh, that I think is extremely exciting for individuals pursuing the skilled trades is small business ownership, entrepreneurship. So certainly these programs can be a catalyst for reinvigorating uh, small businesses, creating new small businesses that perhaps one day would turn into large businesses. So our community and technical colleges are just so uniquely positioned to help provide that supplemental training and support to an individual who goes through, gets certification, begins to hone their craft, and then is always decided uh, that they have wanted to pursue owning their own business. So I think certainly when it comes to investing in new small businesses, the opportunities are endless there. And then just as a last question, so much of this is about how people think about these jobs, about changing the narrative and changing the messaging. How much at Lowe's are you investing in making that kind of uh, change in the way people think about jobs that they might have disregarded as something they didn't want to do? Well, we are uh, looking to see this as a platform to help educate individuals on this great and amazing opportunity there are a number of misperceptions. And what we want to do is really shine a light on our community and technical colleges, as well as our community-based nonprofits and the graduates that are coming out of there. Um, it's so inspiring. I spoke with one of, our, one of the apprentices that graduated from She Built the City. Prior to going through the program, she had only ever used a hammer. She is using power tools. She will be working in facilities management. She now has a career path that is just laid out in front of her with um, unimaginable opportunity. And she just loves it. She says, this has ignited me. Um, and so I think it's the stories that we hear from real life that are going to help attract individuals into this workforce. And, and also to show uh, that there's opportunity for everyone here. Um, so that's what we hope will happen. Well, I like that transition from the hammer to the power tools. Betsy Conway, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about the Lowe's Foundation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.